You're listening to the Skeptic's Guide to the Universe, your escape to reality. Hello and welcome to the Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. Today is Wednesday, November 10th, 2010, and this is your host, Stephen Novella. Joining me this week are Bob Novella. Hey, everybody. Rebecca Watson. Hello, everyone. Jay Novella. Hey, guys. And Evan Bernstein. We wish to pursue the truth no matter where it leads. But to find the truth, we need imagination and skepticism both. We will not be afraid to speculate, but we will be careful to distinguish speculation from fact. Ah, yeah. man. sounding good lately. Thanks. I've been working on <laughs> yeah. that. Pretty early for a, uh, who's that noisy? <laughs> I, <have a laughs> I know who it is. I have a feeling, yeah, one or two listeners might guess who that is. Because November 9th, Tuesday of this week, Carl Sagan Day. Yeah. Yep. Carl Sagan's birthday, yep. he would have been 76. Wow. He should have been 76. Yeah. 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 Died in 1996, 14 years ago. Gosh. He was only 62. That long? Too young. Just as I was getting sink, really sinking my teeth into skepticism for the first time in my life, and we lost Carl at that same time, it was very, oh my gosh, it was, it was awful. It's like a kick in the stomach. It sucked. Yeah, I remember we were all on Randy's email list, and he sent out an email saying that a giant had died, you know? Guys, I, uh, I recently found a, a Carl Sagan quote I hadn't read before. Um, it said, um, or he said, but superstition and pseudoscience keep getting in the way, distracting us, providing easy answers, dodging skeptical scrutiny, casually pressing our awe buttons and cheapening the experience, making us routine and comfortable practitioners as well as victims of credulity. I hadn't, I hadn't read that one before. That one was pretty good. Very good. Yeah, I've read that. It's an excellent quote. Yeah, I know we've said it before, but uh, Sagan's A Demon Haunted World is an excellent entry into the world of scientific skepticism. Although I would read all of his books, or better yet, you know, listen to them uh, book on tape, especially the ones that he recorded in his own voice. For so- I love listening to him speak. Yeah. You know, not only is he very eloquent, but he, I don't know, he just has a you know, very like intellectual, soothing voice. It's just... He was an absolutely great spokesperson for for science and skepticism. Just in that very quote, Evan, I mean, you can see this combination of promoting critical thinking, but also, you know, the awe and wonder of science, the the view that science gives us of of nature and of, and of the universe. So, I do think he sort of he struck a really tremendous balance between those two things. I don't know that anyone, you know, before or since has gotten it just right the way he did. Whenever anyone asks me what one book I would give to somebody who's not a skeptic to kind of show them what skepticism is all about and maybe even convince them to be more skeptical, my answer is always Demon Haunted World. I think yeah, it's just yeah, the, the all-time greatest skeptical book ever written for a general audience. I, mean, I give that book to people every year for Christmas. I end up giving it to somebody. That's a great mm-hmm. idea. You know, remember when we interviewed Bill Nye in... Um, Bill and I told us that he was actually a student in uh, Carl yeah. Sagan's classroom. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I find that that I often think about that. I don't. I don't know why that stuck with me since that interview, but I just think, my God, think about how intimate it is to be in a classroom, especially you know an advanced science classroom where most likely you know you're not in a room full of a hundred people. Maybe you're in there with ten to thirty people every day or twice a week or whatever. Imagine having a class where Carl Sagan is your teacher. Just imagine how awesome that experience must have been. Yeah, and, and I mean, I think it really illustrates the, the, the real success of Carl Sagan. It wasn't just 
educating the public about science and skepticism. Um, he was incredibly inspirational. And I mean, I think thanks to Sagan, we are probably, you know, I, I'd say a great number of our current living skeptical heroes uh, were directly inspired by Sagan, whether they were in his class or they watched oh, Cosmos. Yeah. Or Steve, remember, remember growing up? Remember growing oh, yeah. up watching Cosmos? It was like a religious experience almost. <laughs> <laughs> I, I remember, I remember uh, Cosmos being on TV and Steve was kind of like the, you know, like the show was basically like Steve's big thing. It was like, you were so into it, Steve. And when that show oh, yeah. came on, and I remember like, I would always ask you and Bob after the show, like, what's happening? What, explain that to me. I don't get that. I didn't understand a lot of the physics and a lot of the a lot of the heavier details and you guys would like really get into detail explaining things to me and you were so passionate about it i remember you know we, we had a very early vcr at that time and i remember i taped every episode yeah. and watched them over and over again vcr yeah yeah right <laughs> what is that <laughs> there are tape. guys some people are actually going to have to google that to know what that is <laughs> <laughs> is that a prehistoric tivo <laughs> basically right well, let's let's move on. Um, Evan, you're going to tell us about the mystery missile from Southern California. There was. It was big, big news yesterday. Early yesterday, it was, it was reported that witnesses, some captured on uh, video and film, caught a what is appeared to be a missile off the California coast uh, rising into the air. Uh, from out in the ocean and heading up towards over the, well, in some accounts, the uh, continental U- United States, right over right over the land of California. Uh, lots of pictures taken, uh, some video as well. You can go online and have a look. It's, uh, it was a pretty big story. But the controversy was is that nobody knew of any missile uh, launches that were taking place that day. The military denied it. Um, the NASA, you know, de- you know, denied it. They said they had nothing going on. There were no private companies, you know, sending their exper- experimental rockets or anything like that up. So rumors began to swell very quickly. Did a submarine launch a test, you know, from a foreign country come up to close to the United States and launch launch a missile, or did are the United is the United States secretly launching this missile in? coordination with our president's trip to Asia as a sign of strength to the North Koreans and the Chinese and other adversaries we have over there. Uh, It was a day full of headlines and assumptions as to exactly what this was. Well, I finally got a chance to look a little closer at the pictures and the video. And to me, I'm like, well, that's that's a pretty standard pattern, I think, for uh, a vapor trail. Led by a, a, a jumbo jet or a uh, or a jet airliner. Yeah, it's a contrail. Yeah. I mean, look at that picture. <laughs> also, I mean, if you compare it to the exhaust of an actual rocket, it just has a different texture to it. You know what I mean? It looks different. You watch. Uh, you guys have probably seen rocket launching the shuttle go, go up. I've, I've seen a hundred rocket launches probably on, on on video. It just looks different. This looks exactly like a contrail. But it is still a problem, of course, because as we all know, contrails are actually full of chemicals that the government is using to dope up its citizens. Yeah, you mean chemtrails, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Right. Right. Raining down chemtrails. the poison, poisoning Fact. People. Wake up, sheeple. 
But the, the, you know, it's ultimately though it's basically an optical illusion. That's why so many yeah. people had no idea what what this thing was, and it's a decent optical illusion. The problem is the main cause of the optical illusion, in, in my point of view, is the fact that the bottom, you know, the um, the lower part of the um, of the exhaust was was so spread out because of the winds. So it would look, it looked much wider than it, than it was, which kind of helped give it uh, that that apparent angle. And also, I mean, it, it it was it was far away. So it actually, you know, anything no matter how high you are off the ground, if you're far enough away, you're going to be down by the horizon because the earth is curved. So the, so it looked like it started at the horizon and kind of was going up, but it was really really coming towards the camera. So it's really yeah. just an optical illusion that that's causing all that. And I it, I was very disappointed that it took so long. I mean, all these government agencies were like, I have no idea what that, you know, we don't, we don't know what missile that is, just assuming it was a missile. And then it took these, it took these, you know, regular private companies to say, hey, wait a second, you know, this isn't a missile exhaust, this is a contrail from a plane. And it just made, it was very disappointed that uh, all these government agencies, no one, what, there's no, no one in these agencies that, that saw it for what it was? Well, I think they probably were just asked about a missile launch. They looked for evidence. They said, well, no, we didn't. You know, the DOD, the Department of Defense, didn't launch a missile, and no private company did, did all the uh, announcements that they're supposed Come to Come on. Nobody said it's not a missile. Somebody didn't. Yeah, I don't you're think right. anybody said that. I don't, you're right. Somebody, you know, I would think that people with familiarity with missile launches looking at that video would have – uh, suspected that maybe it wasn't a video, but you're right. It is an interesting optical illusion, and you know a lot of people have pointed out that uh, there were no reports of the missile launch from other areas in California where the angle would would have been different. Right? If it's if it's actually a missile launch, no matter what angle you're looking at it from, it'll appear to be going up. But if it's a contrail, it'll only appear to be going you know mostly vertical. From certain angles, and if you were you know, like far to the north or far to the south or whatever of of the of the plane, then it would look more horizontal, would look more like a contrail, and it wouldn't uh, wouldn't appear to be you know that wouldn't cause an optical illusion that it was a missile. And lo and behold, there were no reports of a missile from those locations that would have had uh, a different angle of view. But did you guys see the the uh, news report about the missile? Total oh. news report fail. Total. Ep- total epic fail. What did it Shocking. say? I mean, well, it just it, it treated the story as a mystery <laughs> missile mystery launch. Mystery missile, yeah. Well, every, well I can't, you can't blame them. That's what everybody was, was thinking, everyone. Actually, you can blame them because the whole point of journalism is not just to repeat what everybody on the internet says is true. Yes. It's to figure out what the facts are and report let's, them. Let's and not, then, but it's let's not let that. our standards slip so low. And it's worse than that because then they they brought on this like pseudo expert, you know, somebody who doesn't really know what they're talking about, but has was an ambassador or something, and and he starts speculating wildly about you know a, a submarine based missile launch to impress the Asians on you know on Obama's yeah. visit, and they they totally report that they go this is just speculation, but but here's a bunch of nonsense that has nothing to do with anything. And Steve, we combine it was terrible. Yeah, and we combine that with the fact that the government agencies did take too long, frankly, to come out and say that this was a contrail. Right? It took 24 hours basically yeah. for the Pentagon. Yeah. That's all you need, right? Hello, lesson from Roswell, right? <laughs> you know, it only took a day yeah, or two you're right. there that you're gap. Right. And you, you're right. You have these whole- Those agencies in general don't do a good job of having like a rapid response to an emerging media story. 
You know what I mean? They just don't do that well. I mean, I understand what they want to get their facts correct and everything, but, you know, my gosh, if, if, if us schlubs can take a look at this and figure out really what it is in, in five minutes, yeah. can don't doesn't the Pentagon or someone have an expert that looks at it and, say, and comes to the same conclusion and said, hey, guys, report this. This is the fact. You know, this is what it is. So it's, yeah. it's disappointing. Well, the, the fact is, though, guys, to the layman, it does look like a rocket or a missile of some kind just by, you know, we understand why it looks the way that it does now. But if I were standing at the perspective that those pictures were taken and I looked at it and someone asked me what it was, I'd say, well, it looks like a missile launch or a rocket launch, you know, and I would start asking questions of the similar to what people were asking. The real problem here is that the people who could answer the question, you know, didn't do it in a way that satisfied the public. Mm-hmm. And and we we've talked about this before that you know the, the the way that they communicate to the public is very poor, and that yeah. scientists are very bad speakers of science. They don't know how to communicate well. They're not very good with people. So that's that's the real problem here. I like that you called them bad speakers of science. <laughs> ironic, <laughs> right? Some people have a way with words, and other people. Oh, I love you not guys. have way. <laughs> Some people don't speak English good. That's that's all we're saying. Gooder. That was a Steve Martin quote, by the way. I don't want to take false credit for that. Um, Contrail Science had a good uh, treatment of this whole topic with you know charts and angles and stuff. He in fact debunked this same thing a year ago. He had, he had already dealt yeah. with this issue a year ago. It was all there. He just updated it with the latest episode. But you got to read the comments. You know, we'll have the link. Read the comments. And again, I love listening to or reading people rationalizing away something that we now know to be wrong, you know, and seeing where their logic is going wrong. They're explaining why this isn't a plane and why it can't be a plane. Of course, it's all nonsense. One of the things, for example, like someone says, well, then how do you explain the flames coming out of the back of the the ship or the rocket or whatever it is that's making this trail? And if you look at the video, at one point you do see a flashing light originating from the head of the contrail. And so the the problem the guy's making is prematurely assuming that this flash of light it's is fire. flames. Yeah. It's it's just light reflecting off of the plane. It, and it makes perfect sense given where the angle of the sun. You could see this is uh, you know, where the sun is and and the angle of the of the video, you would expect the sun to be reflecting off of the plane when it is at the right angle. So that's what you're seeing. Well, I mean, you guys have seen light reflecting off a jet flying overhead oh, before, yeah. right? Especially when the sun is low on the sky. But to him, this became flames. And then starting from that false premise, he said, therefore, it can't be a plane. There's flames coming out the back end. <laughs> Another non-mystery solved. <laughs> solved. <laughs> Bob, tell us about uh, the latest update from the Large Hadron Collider. It's not that large. (laughs) Yeah, right. (laughs) 27 kilometers. Uh, Big bangs. (laughs) Big bangs were in the news this week, and uh, I'm not talking about that sex convention from last week's show. Um, the uh, <laughs> what, whatever I had too to say. Easy, too easy. Yeah, I know. Whatever. The large, <laughs> the large hadron collider or LHC, which we've mentioned, I think once or twice before on the show, has uh, been reported to have made the little Big Bang-like explosions deep within its technological bowels. But don't worry, there won't be there won't be any new universes resulting from this because if there were, you'd be, you'd be dead by now. Uh, Did the, it make a noise, Bob? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, the, the, these are just so microscopic. I I don't I I don't know. There's probably so much noise and 
around there that you probably couldn't even hear it, even if it was audible. Jay, um, seriously, before we record, do you sit around thinking of the question that nobody can answer? <laughs> you you Steve, have to come up with the question that nope that you know we could not possibly have prepped for. Steve, <laughs> yeah. you, I I actually think of things that I could ask Bob when as soon as I find out what his topic is, I sit there and I think, what can I ask Bob? And I usually come up with four or five unanswerable questions, one of which usually makes it into the show. Yeah, I appreciate I appreciate well, that. So the term Big Bang, there's only a loose connection. Uh, and you know they're just really using that to kind of suck you in, so to speak. Uh, the experiment, though, is still very interesting. And there's, uh, there is some connection, after all, to the real Big Bang that happened 13.7 billion years ago. Typically, the LHC collides protons together. And it's been doing it for, geez, what is it, a couple of years now. Um, and it looks at the, at the debris to learn, among other things, whether the Higgs boson exists, which is believed to imbue matter with mass. I hope they find that bad boy. But uh, recently, however, scientists have been stripping electrons from lead atoms and smashing uh, these nuclei together uh, to cause these little mini big bangs. Now, lead atoms are darn hefty, uh, you know, in the atomic realm with 82 protons, oh, yeah. 82 protons and 126 neutrons. So these are big, these are you know big boys. When they're accelerated close to the speed of light called ultra-relativistic speeds, you can actually achieve temperatures and energy densities similar to one millionth of a second after the Big Bang. There's your connection. Uh, so we're talking about 10 million million degrees centigrade, or about a million times hotter than the center of the sun. So yeah, that's pr- pretty damn hot. These are actually the highest temperatures and energy densities ever produced in an experiment. You may have heard of this experiment referred to as ALICE. Now, this actually refers to one of the four main detectors uh, that, that go around the LHC's 27-kilometer uh, underground ring. ALICE is designed specifically to deal with these lead, these lead atom collisions. So it, it was designed since its inception just to deal with the, the, this scenario. Now, I don't know the names of the other three detectors. Perhaps they're, I don't know, Ralph, Ed, and Trixie, or maybe Bob, Carol, and Ted. So four experience points if you know what the hell I'm talking about. <laughs> uh, Dr. David Evans <laughs> at the, from the University of Birmingham in UK, he's one of the researchers working on the ALICE experiment. He said, at these temperatures, even protons and neutrons, which make up the nuclei of atoms, melt, resulting in a hot, dense soup of quarks and gluons, known as my favorite type of plasma, quark-gluon plasma. Quark-gluon plasma, we've mentioned this a couple times, it's considered another state of matter, you know, after the usual suspects of the solid, liquid, gas, you know, plasma, Bose-Einstein condensate. Now, quarks are made up of neutrons and protons, and uh, gluons are the, the color force carrying particles between, between quarks, and at these temperatures, quarks aren't really bound together anymore. They're not exactly totally free, but they are, they're kind of loosely bound together. But you have this, this kind of soup of particles of quarks and, and gluons. So by studying this plasma, scientists hope to elucidate the strong nuclear force which holds uh, the, the protons and neutrons together. And uh, I wasn't quite aware of this, but this, the strong nuclear force accounts for 98% of the mass of the atom, and thus 98% of the mass of everything, you, me, meatballs, whatever. Uh, so that's pretty interesting, and there's really not – we know a lot about it, but I think there's a lot that we don't know about it. I, I found one one kind of crazy headline regarding this, and I was kind of happy I only found one. From the Tech Herald, they said, end of the world, question mark, LHC successfully creates mini Big Bang. But uh, the, the article was pretty decent inside. It wasn't too crazy. Just fire that headline writer. So how yeah. close are we to the to the Higgs boson? Uh, we don't know. It seems like we kind of keep narrowing the, the range of what of, – you know the constraints around it, which yeah. it could be found, but um, I don't know. I mean, I I would say in in a couple of years, two or three years, I, my I'd, I'd bet that we we could find it. Uh, I hope we do. 
the it's like really the the one you know the last big missing piece of our of our yeah. standard model. Um, so uh, it's got to you know I hope it's there. I hope yep. we, uh, I hope it's powerful enough. It looks like the LHC is powerful enough to uh, to find yeah. it. Yeah. Well, if they do find it, you'll hear about it here first. Oh yeah, or uh, probably not. Probably not, <laughs> but we'll talk about it. Is there anything dangerous about attempting to do stuff like this? Yeah, don't put your head in the machine. <laughs> Besides the mini black holes and the and the strange matter, strangelets. Nah, nah, it's good, Jay. I mean, I think worst case scenario would be a big explosion that kills some workers. But I mean, it's not like it's going to you know suck in the earth or or destroy the universe or anything like that. Hmm. Hopefully not. Yeah. Right? So, so, guys, I got the latest fad diet for you. Ready? Uh, Do it. Okay. Jay, you're going to like this. Oh boy. The Twinkie diet. Oh, yeah. yeah. I'm already on that diet. Diet. That's Twinkies, Nutty Bars, and Powdered Donuts. What? Oh What's a Nutty yeah. Bar? An, I don't know. The word diet and doesn't belong tonight, anywhere. <laughs> the word diet doesn't belong anywhere near any of those foods. Calories in, calories out. This was, this was the diet that a nutritionist, Mark Hobb, put himself on for 10 weeks. Uh, he ate nothing but Twinkies and, and Twinkie-like substances for 10, <laughs> for 10 weeks, and he lost 27 pounds during that period of time. Was it Good from vomiting? <laughs> no. From low-caloric intake. <laughs> yes, he limited himself to 1,800 calories a day. What, six Twinkies? That's it? <laughs> and, well, he also had uh, little Debbie snacks, Dorito chips, sugary cereals, and Oreos. Not much nutrition there. Yeah, I mean, well, for ten weeks, I mean, it's not like you're going to die of malnutrition. Well, he also took weeks. a multivitamin and had a nutrition shake or whatever. But the but the key here is this is kind of his answer to supersize me. Right? Yes, his hypothesis was, and you may have heard this before, that oh. when it comes to weight. Management, weight gain, weight loss. That, that's the important context here. The only thing that matters is the total calories consumed. It doesn't really matter what those calories are, whether it's you know sugar or fat or if it's in Twinkies. Uh, it doesn't matter. Just it's how many calories are you taking in? And therefore, you know, the 1,800 calorie a day diet of Twinkies caused him to lose weight. Uh, and again, it's similar to. These, you know, the Super Size Me diet, the movie where the guy basically ate McDonald's three meals a day, and whenever he was asked if he wanted to be supersized, he said, yes, I do. Thank you. Yeah, you can't compare the two studies, Steve. I'm not. First of all, this wasn't a study. This was more of just, was just on himself. This was one anecdote. This is, it's, a, it's a case report of one individual. Uh, and so was the, the Super Size Me, just one guy. So what happens if I ate at McDonald's for a month? But the point is he was eating 3,500, 4,000 calories a day. Yep. The adverse effects of eating those many calories are what he experienced. It doesn't matter that those calories were coming in the form of of hamburgers, right? Just like this guy lost weight despite the fact that he was uh, Twinkies. It's important to note that his uh, cholesterol went down and other things. Yes, Uh that's right. His LDL, his bad cholesterol dropped 20%. Really? His good cholesterol increased by 20% and his triglycerides were reduced by 39%. Whoa. Explain that, science. Was he, was he doing any exercise? <laughs> yes, he was lifting Twinkies from his hip to his mouth. <laughs> I would imagine. He didn't change his routine, but I don't know um, how much exercise he was doing. Guys, the point is, he was taking in less calories than he, says he was burning. He, yeah, but he That's says it. he maintained the same level of moderate physical activity as before. Moderate. Which, which means he was playing Connect 
<laughs> or not even. <laughs> so the, the 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 cholesterol thing is really interesting, and this is in line with a lot of other studies that show that weight has a dominant impact on your cholesterol profile, more so than your diet. <laughs> so if you That's lose great. weight, if you lose weight with a high fat diet, your cholesterol still goes down. That's been shown over and over again with the, the low-carb, high-fat diets. Uh, the big concern about those diets was that it would cause people to, to it would adversely affect their cholesterol profile. But in fact, if you lose weight, that improves your cholesterol right. profile no matter what you're eating. It doesn't mean that, that what you eat doesn't matter for your cholesterol. It just means that your overall weight is a big dominant factor. So basically, the more fat you have on your body, the more cholesterol your body is going to yes. hold on to or produce, Steve. Which is it? Well, I, well both. I mean, that uh, you, you do manufacture cholesterol, but it, it is based largely on what you eat and also how much fat you have in your body. So the bottom line is that for weight management and for lipid profile, uh, just calories is what's important. He, again, even he, even, you know, Hobb, the guy who did this, is saying he's not recommending the Twinkie diet. It's not necessarily a healthful diet in other ways. It certainly isn't right. good for sugar metabolism or for diabetes. Right. It probably is not good for just your overall nutritional intake. Uh, you know, taking a multivitamin is fine, but there's, it's pretty consistent in this, in clinical studies that Taking vitamins is not a substitute for a healthful diet. If you look at risk factors of all sorts of things, that you know, eating lots of fruits and vegetables and having a you know a healthful diet in that respect does correlate with lower risk of certain kinds of cancer and certain kinds of you know, like heart disease and and other things. But that uh, trying to duplicate that by taking supplements doesn't seem to convey the same benefit. Uh, so no, I don't think anybody would recommend the Twinkie diet or saying that there's that it's not an unhealthy diet or that there's no downside to it. It's just making the one point that weight is about calories in versus calories out. Right. Now, a, a Twinkie has 150 calories. So if he was taking, um, if he was trying to take in around 2,000 calories a day, 1,800. So that's, 1800? that's 12, 12 Twinkies a day. Yeah, and I, and I think he said he was eating one every three hours. Yeah. So there's so 36 so. hours in his day. So he's a time traveler. Well, he was eating other things as well. <laughs> but I think, yes, yeah, so he was good. But he looks like he's getting most of it from Twinkies. That's awesome. Right. I could do that for a couple of days. <laughs> right. How long, though, before everybody just totally forgets about this? Goes back onto their yeah, preconceived you know, notion the on is, how to lose weight. You have to put this into context of actual research. And this guy's a nutritionist, so I think, he, and he knows what he's talking about. It seems like from reading this article, and he was just doing this as a stunt almost, just to demonstrate a principle. Right. But the principle is based on research. You know, it's not like this is not the evidence. This is just a demonstration of the evidence, really. Which is, I think, an important lesson for scientists to learn is that you know the general public. You can do all of the research you want, and it can be very convincing to 99% of the experts in your field. But the general public doesn't care until you stage a, some sort of media event in which you eat nothing but Twinkies for two weeks. Right, right. I mean, it's just right. a fact. Yeah. And I really appreciate the fact that this guy did go out of his way to say, yeah. you know, this is anecdotal, this is not science. Yeah. But, you know, yeah. Steve, how much weight lesson. did he lose? 27 pounds. 27. Wow, that's awesome. Wow, wow Steve, Steve, does he, mention, does he mention what his exact ratio of Twinkies to Nutty Bars were? Because <laughs> that's got to be it. What was that ratio? It was a magical ratio, yeah, right? Yeah, I know. <laughs> right, right. 
He has the nutty bar load at night, Bob, before he goes to bed. <laughs> this uh, whole thing also reminds me of a, a recent local radio ad that I've been hearing. This guy really annoys me. He's selling these weight loss smoothies. And in the commercial, he starts off by saying, did you know that you could eat less than 1,000 calories a day and still gain weight? If you want to lose weight, you have to feed your body right. Then he goes into his sales pitch for his weight loss smoothies. But of course, that's total BS. First of all, you can't gain weight eating less than 1,000 calories a day. Even a completely sedentary person has a basal metabolic rate that would burn off more calories than that. And according to you know the Twinkie diet results here, you, you don't need to quote-unquote feed your body right in order to lose weight. You do if you want optimum health, obviously, but to lose weight, all you got to do is reduce calories. So that's – and again, I get the impression from this guy. He doesn't care if what he's saying is true or accurate or not, right? I mean, in my opinion, he just completely invented that. It's just part of his sales pitch. I don't know what that could possibly be based on. You know what else this brings up? The foods he was eating had a lot of saturated fats in them, and those have come under so much fire lately and to the point of being banned in certain cities. Oh, yeah. Um, God, I hope they take a look at this and reverse those stupid, stupid bans. Well, not so much saturated food. fat, but the, tra- the trans fat, that's the one that's really been under fire. Yeah. Oh, is that that's different? Yeah. Okay, I'm sorry. Never mind. Well, well saturated fats are a little bad. Yeah, you know, the the trans fats are really bad. But again, I think the the evidence shows that while those effects are there in the research, they do keep coming up. That your overall weight again still is a is a dominant factor. And the problem I think with the Twinkie diet is. Um, that for most people, just you know, adding Twinkies to your diet is going <laughs> to add calories, and you're going to end up overeating. Uh, you know, people underestimate the amount of calories that they eat. They they accidentally you know overconsume calories all the time. And, and isn't that's um, the problem? Eating sugar makes you crave more sugar. So you know this this guy was doing an experiment in which he you know had to limit himself to a certain number of Twinkies. But if you do eat a ton of sugar in your day or not even a ton if you if you eat this restricted calorie diet but it, it that there's a good chance it's going to increase your cravings and make things more uncomfortable and you'll be more likely to slip if you're not under the yeah. watchful eye of the internet uh the, the the craving thing is interesting i mean that appears to be a short-term effect um that you're you're essentially you're how much you, you crave to eat sort of levels off no matter what you switch your diet to. But in terms of, say, like you're craving calories, like how much you're going to eat based upon your hunger, there, there, is, uh, there does appear to be a temporary benefit to decreasing uh, carbohydrate intake, but that goes away after a few months, say six months on the outside, and you sort of just re-equilibrate. Re- re- but um, having a narrow diet, is a problem because people have a really hard time sticking to a restrictive diet. In this case, ironically, his calorie counting was actually helped by the fact that he was eating all prefab food where you could see how many calories were on on you know on the the packaging, right? Like he knows there's 150 calories in a Twinkie. You eat a Twinkie, you know exactly how many calories you're getting. You eat a plate of food, you don't really know how many calories you're getting. You can estimate maybe 
but but that's again, I think where a lot of people overeat. So that's why I only eat those hundred calorie packs of tiny <laughs> yeah. ten of them. Bag after bag after bag. <laughs> yep, they're so small. Steve, that's the key to the entire thing. This whole experiment yeah. revolves around the fact that he knew exactly what his caloric intake was. Yes. And he was able to, to not only regulate it, but you know, do it over an extended period of time. That's where his success came from. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And there is evidence to support the benefit of meal replacements in weight loss programs because they do help people estimate their total caloric intake. You know, yeah, let's face that. it. You know, I, I ate dinner about an hour and a half ago. And... You know that that quick calculation that you make, even if you're the kind of person, because I get, I try to calculate pretty much every meal that I do. I'm like, okay, what am I eating? What is this? You know, how bad is it? I have no idea. I'm probably off by twenty, thirty, forty percent on average. Because the more hungry I am, the less calories I pretend that it has, without fail. <laughs> you guys, I am pretty much dying for a Twinkie right now. Yeah, <laughs> me too. Me too. I haven't had one in a long or time. A you know what I want? I want a Whopper from uh, from uh, Burger King, mm-hmm. and I want a Twinkie. That's I want a, what I want. I want a Choco right Taco. I want a hamburger. I want a cheeseburger. Hey, speaking of hamburgers, like speaking of hamburgers, Rebecca, you have some follow up for us on the hamburger experiment. <laughs> yeah, I do. It's almost smooth, Steve. <laughs> that was nice very segue. Smooth. This, oh, yeah, yeah, this this whole episode of SGU is brought to you by One Off Experiments. <laughs> with food. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> one off. Get your one off. So, yeah, a few weeks ago, I guess, um, we discussed the McDonald's hamburger that won't rot, that won't get moldy. And I say it as though it's singular when, in fact, there have been dozens of these experiments by people hoping to prove that McDonald's hamburgers are incredibly unhealthy and made of plastic and cockroaches or something. Yum. Um, and, you know, we, we talked about it and we discuss just from a common sense standpoint the fact that, well, it's likely that they wouldn't get moldy because they're dehydrating like we see happen to food all the time under specific circumstances and food that's dehydrated won't get moldy. And we suggested that if you were to do the same thing with a hamburger you cooked at home, you would probably see similar results. Well, we got a ton of emails, some of which um, still, for some reason, argued that McDonald's hamburgers have tons of preservatives in them, um, which I'm pretty sure is just that's just false. Um, it's, it's it's false. We, I mean, they list their ingredients. Yeah, that's well. That, I, I'm saying pretty sure because there is a chance. There's a vast conspiracy that the gov- that McDonald's <laughs> is hiding its ingredients from the government. Um, but no, there are preservatives in the, the rolls, but they're the exact same preservatives that are in every loaf of bread on the shelf in your grocery store. Um, and the meat is 100% meat. So, you know, those emails sort of baffled me, and I won't read any of them aloud because it's frankly just embarrassing for the people who sent them. But uh, a lot of people sent us links to experiments that have been done um, to combat these these one-off experiments that show they won't rot. These are experiments w- that are that actually have controls that you know take into consideration some of the things we discussed on the podcast the other week. So there were a number of them. If you go to YouTube and do a search, you'll find a bunch probably. Um, the best one that I saw though was on uh, seriouseats.com. And it was titled The Burger Lab, Revisiting the Myth of the 12-Year-Old McDonald's Burger That Just Won't Rot. 
J. Kenji Lopez Alt is the author, and he did an amazing job of testing this scientifically. He compiled uh, nine different burgers. He got one plain McDonald's hamburger uh, stored on a plate in the open air outside of its wrapper, one plain burger made from home ground, fresh all-natural chuck of the exact dimensions of the McDonald's hamburger on a standard store-bought toasted bun, a plain burger with a home ground patty but a McDonald's bun, a plain burger with a McDonald's patty on a store-bought bun, uh, a McDonald's burger in its original packaging, a McDonald's burger without any salt, a McDonald's quarter pounder, a homemade burger, the exact dimension of the quarter pounder, and a McDonald's Angus third pounder, which oh, they're good. I didn't even know existed. And oh, they're we're awesome. all a little worse off. I will never have another kind of burger at McDonald's after I had the Angus. <laughs> well, I guess that's <laughs> really? like, yeah. I guess that's why is it that good, Steve? Oh, it that, blows that away the, good. It blows away their other fare. <laughs> You're saying that I have kids. Uh, if you have kids, occasionally you will be forced to eat a McDonald's. At least now, when I am when I am forced to eat there, I can get an Angus burger, which is actually no. Good. I'm going to have I, like I disagree. Hippie veggie children that won't be <laughs> taking me to McDonald's. Oh come on, Rebecca! You have to let your kids eat a little hamburger with the pickles on it at McDonald's. I'll make them one at home made of mushrooms and yeah but it won't be a happy meal i'll put a little toy yeah. in there put a little toy in there. Called, they're actually called crappy meals Rebecca. <laughs> Get with it. anyway uh, i'm gonna slip your kids beef jerky when i'm around them just stand there whistling. that's illegal jay careful disgusting so, maybe not in your country <laughs> hope you'll at least wait until so, what, so how'd the experiments consent. turn out come on i'm waiting here <laughs> okay so <laughs> So he chose these these nine different samples as a way to test various hypotheses, um, such as the idea that it's the uh, the size of the burger that's preventing it from rotting, or it's the and that's why he had two different sizes. Um, he could test whether or not it's these so-called preservatives, um, but he tests that by having the homemade burger. He tests it by. Uh, you know, whether or not the, the salt level in the burger is preventing the burger from rotting. That's why he ordered one with no salt. So at the end of the experiment, basically what he found confirmed, surprise, surprise, exactly what we figured out using common sense two weeks ago on the podcast, which is that uh, with a bit of extra interesting information, I should say, it is in fact uh, just the fact that the burger dehydrates and that's why there's no mold on it. He found that the all of the burgers that were the exact same size did not get any mold on them. That's the, the McDonald's burger, the one without salt, and the homemade one. Uh, none of those rotted. But then he looked at the larger burgers, the quarter pounders, and he found that the McDonald's quarter pounder uh, looked remarkably like the homemade quarter pounder, each with a little lump of mold in the middle of them. Um, so what he found that was that the McDonald's hamburgers are are so tiny that they're they're the exact dimensions necessary for uh, for them to dehydrate before they get any any mold settling on them. Uh, he made little graphs that showed how each hamburger dehydrated, showing that the regular burgers dehydrated at, at a much faster rate in the first three days than the quarter pounders. I mean, this guy was all inclusive here. He even went so far as to um, then test whether or not he 
could in fact make a McDonald's hamburger rot. And he did that by simply taking a McDonald's hamburger and throwing it in a Ziploc bag and taking a homemade burger of the same dimensions, throwing it in another Ziploc bag. This trapped moisture in the bags with the burgers and sure enough, it trapped enough moisture in them that both of them rotted almost immediately. Within a week, they were covered in mold. So there you go. I think that's pretty much case closed on this one. McDonald's burgers can, in fact, rot. They just need to be exposed to the right conditions. And when they are, they they rot at exactly the same uh, rate as a homemade burger. Right. That's fascinating. Myth busted. I now Thanks owe the Myth Busters 50 cents. Right. <laughs> Thanks for that follow-up, Rebecca. No problem. Evan, please inform us about last week's Who's That Noisy? Well, if you recall, it was a person. All right, here we go. A cold reading is you warm up the sucker by telling him things that he says, how could he ever know that, you see? You say, you know, between the ages of uh, 13 and 15, you had a a great change came in your life. But that happens in everybody's life. (laughs) All right. Oh, we all knew who it was. So technically I won. Give I think me my you, prize. I think you were. There were a lot of cl- of correct guesses from our listeners. There was an early email and an early forum posting. Did you decide which one came in first? The forum posting came in just before the email. And who was Literally. it? Uh, he goes by the name of No Woo N O W O O. I know who Fred. that is. That's oh. Fred Bremer. Is it? I know Fred. Yeah. Is it Fred? Yeah. Yes, Fred. Fred. He can't win. We know him. Fred Bremer? The guy of course he can win. The guy from Vancouver? I'm never yeah. going there. He gave there. me squatchy pants. I refuse Fred's to go there. practically organizing our entire Vancouver event for us. He's he like? also the only human being alive, other than us, who's been to every SGU dinner. That's right. Uh, wow. I haven't even been to every SGU he's been to, Yeah, he's been to more than <laughs> that Rebecca. Is <laughs> I actually Look, I just do. I, I just messaged Fred today, and I said after after Tam Oz, he will have been to six SGU dinners. Right, ridiculous. He needs to know <laughs> oh, he's also the tallest skeptic in history. He's like eight foot twelve or something. <laughs> no, <laughs> eight foot twelve. I think, I think that's my I think way. Penn of saying. is taller than him. <laughs> I'm. I'm actually. I just glanced at my computer screen, and Facebook is up, and. He just posted on Evan's wall asking if he won. Who's that noisy? <laughs> He's very excited. <laughs> I'm going to tell him he didn't. <laughs> oh, don't do that. Well, Evan, and what's the answer for the other listeners who haven't figured it out yet? That was the unmistakable classic voice of Orson Welles. Orson Welles. Who Remember knew we were- he was so skeptical? Right. That was a nice surprise, huh? Well, was he a magician at some point or something? I think he dabbled. He did. Yeah, he, he knew about cold reading. He did dabble. He knew about cold reading. He set up some experiments. Boy, what a great entertainer, movie maker, radio voice. Orson Welles, come on. I mean, yeah, you know, one of yeah. the best. Just, awesome uh, guy. Awesome guy. Good to know he was on our side when he was alive. And I just need to pass along a couple of acknowledgments. 
I'd like to say thanks to Meredith from my Facebook friends to for sending me the uh, link for the Radio Wave Ensemble sounds from uh, a couple of weeks ago. Appreciate that, Meredith. And I also wanted to thank Michael, a listener from New Jersey, who sent us the link for the Orson Welles clip, which was last week's Who's That Noisy? Thank you very much, Michael. We appreciate it. What do you got for this week? Yeah, I was going to say that that leads us to <laughs> this week's Who's That Noisy? All right, now, Is it some Australian beast that will <laughs> be gnawing on us at some point soon? Perhaps, perhaps. Maybe not indigenous to Australia, but other places as well. Now, not the crickets, obviously, people. Come on. We don't want to know what the crickets... We all know what crickets sound like. What was that other noisy thing in the <laughs> happening background. in the background? Yeah. yeah. What was it? Was it man? Was it beast? Who knows? The abominable snowman. So I'm sure some expert is going to come forward who listens to the show. Says I've done my life research on that animal. Exactly. <laughs> They're going to tell us what the animal was and what season it is. You know, was it like a mating call or was it a, you know, <laughs> right. a death call or what the hell it was? He's going to come up with all the specifics on it. So He or she will do that, yes. Good luck, everyone. Thanks, Evan. Uh, let's move on to a couple of your emails. first one comes from Andy Cowan from Southern Oregon, and Andy writes, My friend and I are arguing. Okay, I listen to your show weekly, and I think that you and your rogues are the only ones I know, I say that figuratively, who can put to rest this quarrel between my friend and I. So say you're in space, and you're in a perfectly spherical spaceship that is spinning. If you start off hovering in the middle of the craft as the ship spins, you stay still, and the ship spins around you. If you start off strapped in a chair attached to the side of the craft, I assume he means on the inside, and it starts spinning, you are traveling at the same speed as the craft. So unless there are windows, you don't realize you're spinning, right? Here's where we disagree on what happens next. If you are in the chair and the ship is spinning and you unbuckle your belt and you jump across the ship, I said that you would end up floating across as if you weren't spinning at all. Since there is no gravity acting against you, you would float across to the spot directly above where you were while you were sitting. He says that since it is spinning and it is spherical, that the distance and diameter is smaller than the distance of the circumference. Therefore, you would, using a clock as an example, jump from 6 to around 9.5 instead of 6 to 12. I thought without gravity slowing you down, it would be like you're not spinning at all. Please help us figure this one out. Is this a centripetal force type effect, or does that not exist in space, or is it something totally different? I hope I was able to illustrate this question adequately enough for you to understand the gist of the quarrel. Thanks for your time, and keep up the good work. Can I try to take a stab at it without doing your level of research, I'm sure, that that you and Bob did? Good luck. Regardless of whether there's a window or any kind of perspective of any kind, the bottom line here is that the guy that was strapped to the seat was was going in the circular motion of the object he was attached to because he was attached to it. The moment that he took off that seatbelt, wouldn't he go in a straight line in the direction that he was going in the instant he took off the seatbelt? Yeah, but what that would essentially end up pushing him uh, you know, uh, out against the you know the inner wall of that spinning sphere. That's right. And to him, it would feel very similar to you know indistinguishable from a force of gravity. Right. Yeah, and it would, but would right. he, wouldn't he not being attached to it anymore? 
and also the fact that that sphere is not generating enough gravity to pull him towards it because it's I'm thinking it's relatively small you know I'm mean, not talking about something this Yeah, let's say planet. let's ignore the actual gravity of the person in the ship. Right. Okay. Then then eventually he would he would slowly like deaccelerate from like you know he would like hit the wall, slow down a little bit, hit Why the wall. Why would he slow, slow down? If, if they, let's say he's not strapped into the chair. He would sit right there, just just as if there were gravity acting on him, pushing him down into the chair. All right, wait, wait. So then, right. let's, then we have to assume that that the spinning spacecraft is not going to be affected by him interfering with its spin in any way, right? Because right. I think we could uh, assume that. All right, all right, all right. That being the case, then then the crafts he would continue to receive the energy from the chair, and he would be pushed along in that same trajectory, whether he's strapped in or not. Yeah. So nothing would happen with the unbuckling. Nothing would happen with the unbuckling. No, no. The, the premise, I believe, is that he's that he's jumping up. Yeah. Then Not he that, then he jumps he, up. Then what happens? Right. And, and I think that one of the key questions is, you know, does he once he's not touching a surface, is he still affected? Is he still the pseudo gravity? Is it still, you know, that, that force still affecting him? And I and from what I could tell, I believe yes, because he's in that that frame of reference. He's he has the inertia. Of that of that spinning frame of reference, so um, so once that to me, and then so that kind of decides what's going on. So so therefore, even if he's not even touching the, the floor, he's still going to feel that source of that source of gravity, quote unquote. Um, so uh, and that's the key. And, and this is a moving frame of reference, and within right. a moving frame of reference, there appears to be these mysterious forces at work. You know, from that perspective, right? Remember, Bob, we saw that video um, of yes, the merry-go-round. Yeah, so you imagine you're looking down at two people who are sitting at a table, and one person throws. They they have one of those pucks that like you put dry ice into it, and it creates a vapor underneath it, so it floats with almost right. no friction. And he pushes it out in front of him, and it circles around and comes back without any apparent force acting upon it. And then the camera pulls back, and you realize that the table and the people are attached to this contraption. They're spinning around. They're in a rotating frame of reference, which creates the illusion of a force at work uh, that, would, that moved that uh, puck around. But actually, the puck was going in a straight line. So the same thing would happen if the guy jumped up, even though he might be moving in a straight line, you know, because of the you know, the um, the movement of the ship and his inertia and everything, it would it would he would come back around as if gravity right. were acting upon him, right? Right, and and I think your frame of reference uh, determines how it appears. If you were if you had an outside frame of reference, then it would then it would be a straight line. But if you were within the frame of reference of the spinning space station, then it would look like a curved path, right? Yeah, right. So yeah, this is this is pretty interesting. So, so if you're on a spinning space station and you throw a ball uh, in the direction of rotation or against the direction of rotation, the path of the ball would vary. It would either it would either appear to go up or go down depending if you're throwing it with the rotation or or against the rotation. Uh, but it depends on the the size of this thing and how fast it's going. And yeah. you know, obviously, the smaller it is, the more you're going to notice it because you know, I mean, at at certain at certain sizes, your you know your head and your feet. Kind of like you're, if you're near a black hole, in the sense, the gravitational pull uh, vary will vary to a degree, a significant degree, or at least enough of a degree to make you stumble or or lightheaded or whatever. Yeah. So it depends. The size really does can can make a big difference. Yeah, if it's big enough, you wouldn't notice yeah. any of these any any of these quirks from right. Not yeah, know, not too easily. No. Yeah, 
just yeah, just an average sized person just going, you know, doing normal stuff wouldn't notice anything different at all. Yeah, not unless you actually, yeah, you, I'd assume you'd have to, you could do some experiments to figure it out, but uh, yeah, it could be difficult if it was big enough, sure. Yeah, but casual yeah, observation but, wouldn't reveal it. More it importantly, yeah. if the guy was in a ship like this, he'd be, he'd be screwed. First of all, there's no bathroom, so he'd have to go to the bathroom <laughs> in the ship. And then that's a, that puts a whole different trajectory on everything. <laughs> got that floating around, you know, he's got a couple of sandwiches banging around in there. It's not a good idea. Don't do this. Don't do the experiment? No. Uh, let's do one more email. This one comes from Anta Harala from Tampir, Finland. Hope I didn't butcher that too badly. Ugh. And she writes, I thought I would give you a heads up on an upcoming craze to combat seasonal affective disorder. It's light therapy, but the light is administered to your ears. The device is simple, earbuds that have LEDs in them and a control unit to power the device. They claim that because the skull is at its thinnest in the ear canal, it is also the most effective way to deliver light therapy. Their website refers to an ongoing study and to a preliminary study that was promising. As we wait for the results of a properly done and placebo-controlled study, what are your thoughts about this therapy given the limited information? Yeah. Yeah. Light therapy is in cr- your ear. Yeah, it makes so sense. it's basically worthless. Right. It's oh. it's a LED. Somebody sticks a device in your ear, turns on an LED, and because your skull is at its thinnest at that point, that this is supposed to affect you. How? Deliver- so here's the copy from the company's website. The, the translation may not be perfect. It says, a new way to prevent and treat seasonal affective disorder, reduced exposure to light affects all of us. Symptoms are ranging from mood swings to the more serious seasonal affective disorder. The Valky bright light headset increases light exposure easily and effectively by bringing light very close to the brain via the ear canals. Researchers at the University of Ulu, Finland, have researched bright light headsets since 2008 and are convinced that this is a significant method for the prevention and treatment of seasonal affective disorders and other depression types. Bright light is needed in the brain, not in the eyes. The brain has photosensitive areas that react directly to the lack of light, resulting in depression and mood conditions. These the brain has photos. Yeah, these areas can be cured with bright light. Surprisingly, our eyes are not the most effective route to deliver light to the brain. Uh-huh. The ear canal, where the skull is at its thinnest, is the most effective route to direct light to where it is needed. Can light penetrate the skull? No. Okay. That's what we call in the trade bullcrap. <laughs> Unless it's a laser. Could be a laser. Yeah, but this is a little LED earbud. Oh. I mean, come on. I mean, yes, light gets to your brain through your eyes. That's Eyes are right. highly adapted organs for detecting and sensing light. Uh, and seasonal affective disorder, which is real and can be treated with light, but this is a light that's visible to the eyes, you know, not light somehow magically being shown directly onto your brain. That makes no sense whatsoever. <laughs> Could you? <laughs> so this is really one of those one of those uh, pseudosciences where I think someone one hundred percent deliberately just made it up. It, you What's know, the- it's I, I you, you get the sense sometimes that there are devices in search of something to to treat. You know, or. Uh, products in search of uh, of a use. So you have the ability to make these little holographic discs. Oh, let's put them in a bracelet and claim it will align your frequency. Oh. You know, you have the ability to make these little LED light earbuds. You know, let's oh light seasonal affective disorder. Let's mark it as a treatment for that. 
they, they, it's almost comical, the rationale that they came up with. Almost. almost. <laughs> well, it is <Right>. comical. <laughs> Except that they're not much, for not much light gets through your ears. You know, the canal's not even very straight. I mean, it's just silly. But even if it did, Steve, what what's on the other end that's receiving the light and being affected by the light? Do they actually think it's getting through your skull, hitting the, your brain that happens to be right there? Like, if you go right in through your ear, what what part of your brain is on the left and, and right-hand side right there? Well, anyway, you get, you get to the inner ear, right? I mean, there's, yeah, there's right. stuff Let's there. say you got pet. Let's say that the light actually did what they're saying it does, which it doesn't, which means... It what if you mounted tiny up. little mirrors in your inner ear canal? But what, Steve, if you drill the hole right in your ear till you hit brain, what part of your brain is that? Yeah, that's a good question. The, the, me, the me, newly drilled hole part. Steve, that's your job. I know. Occip- I'm to, uh, occip- <laughs> but I suspect Jesus. it's pretty low. It might even be below the brain, but I want to I pull up a picture. Uh, this doesn't give me a whole lot of hope. It could be below the brain. Your patience, Steve. Oh, maybe. Well, you think that's a critical bit of neurological knowledge? What, would, what part uh, of the brain would you hit if you drilled a hole through your inner ear? Yeah, yeah. I mean, what if I need to get trepined? Trepined. <laughs> <laughs> you know, before uh, you were going to be the person I called, but now, no. Just forget it. I'll just do it myself. I'm glad Let's that Steve see. at least wants to look it up before he starts. Because I, mean, I can go you on Wikipedia. Well, I want to be precise. <laughs> My chiropractor's astrologer said it's a bad day for light therapy, so. Do you have, like, your Blackberry on you when you're in surgery and you're just like, wait, what's... What's that? Oh, see, I see. I don't brain. do surgery. A surgeon <laughs> surgery. probably know the answer to this question off the Whatever. top of their head. <laughs> yeah, Rebecca. <laughs> so to speak. Yeah, I, I, it, it would be like just below the temporal lobe. You know, it wouldn't necessarily even be right on your brain. It'd be directed towards your brain. Unless you went in at an angle. Yeah, but these are earbuds. Well, still, I mean, it's just so. S- and the more of an angle you go up at, the more skull you have to go through. So I think that even the the most basic premise of this device is is wrong. It's not even aimed at your brain. Stick a light up your nose. Yeah, it's like cavity, right, right below the temporal lobe. If you make a, a direct line through the inner ear canal, it's really not even aimed at the brain itself. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> even sillier. <laughs> not that sillier it needed to be more silly. Didn't think um, it could be. And of course, they they they, you know, they referred to some crappy in-house open-label <laughs> study. Oh, people felt better when they used it. Yeah, right. <laughs> this study is promising. And the we're do we're studying it further again. A common ploy. So people, say, oh, it's it's being studied. The whole being studied scam. Yeah, Steve, they're too busy helping people. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, Steve, what are you doing for people? Um, Shooting down their dreams. That's all. Cashing right. your big pharma checks. Yeah. Absolutely. Cha-ching. It's time for Science or Fiction. Each week I come up with three science news items or facts, two real and one fictitious. And then I challenge my panel of skeptics to tell me which one is the fake. Everyone ready for this week? Do it. Mm-hmm. Let's yes. go. All right, here we go. Item number one, new research concludes that as the Earth warms, overall wind speeds will decrease, leaving less energy for wind power. Item number two, a psychology researcher finds that men become more aggressive after viewing images of meat. And item number three, (laughs) a new study finds that while older Americans are sicker than their English counterparts, they live as long or longer. Rebecca, go first, since you giggled. (laughs) You said meat. (laughs) 
Okay. So the idea that wind speeds decrease as the earth warms, that rings a bell in my cavernous dark head. Um, wow, I didn't know where you are going with that. <laughs> <laughs> that rings a bell. So I can, I can, I can believe that that is true. And sad, because wind power, wind power is awesome. I don't know if you've ever seen those things, but they're massive and they're cool looking. I'm pro wind power, mostly because it's cool looking. Men become more aggressive after viewing images of meat. I can see how you might say that there's some psychological thing where it makes men want to hunt and be manly or something. But I don't know. I'm not quite buying that. Becoming more aggressive after viewing meat. <laughs> I don't know why this makes me giggle. I don't know. Maybe maybe the reason why I doubt this is because I know that, you know, bacon is really popular on the internet. Pictures of bacon, anything bacon related. <laughs> and I think people seek it out because they find it relaxing. <laughs> I think, you know, they wouldn't seek it out if it got them all riled up, right? I don't know. <laughs> A new study finds that older Americans are sicker than their English counterparts, but they live as long or longer. Come on, you should know this. Why? Because I've been elderly in both America and England? I don't know any old people. Are you kidding me? If I lived in England, I would be hanging out with old English guys. They're like the funniest, <laughs> coolest dudes out there. Except you wouldn't be able to understand what they're saying. <laughs> I don't think you really understand what it's like to be old in English. It's more like they're all chimney sweeps with the black lung. <laughs> Is that a thing? The black lung? <laughs> That's something miners get, I think. I don't know. Um, so, okay, wait, wait, wait. Americans are sicker, but they live as long or longer. Yeah, okay. I can, I guess I can see that. I don't know. <laughs> um, maybe they, they're sicker because Americans have poor universal health care, but they live longer because Americans have better dental care. Um, I don't oh know. Boy. I'm I'm kind teeth, of at a loss. I'm going to go with the meat thing. I think my bacon theory that bacon is soothing to internet denizens uh, is proof that it's false that, that viewing images of meat makes men more aggressive. Okay, Bob. At the wind speeds, um, I can't, off the top of my head, I can't think of a reason why uh, there'd be less wind speed the hotter the earth gets. Um but uh, I'm not against the idea. Um, hmm. See, the second one, um, yeah, images of meat. I mean, I would think, you know, watch, seeing images of meat would, you know, make me hungry, not aggressive. Uh, but then again, yeah, I, I could see this hardwired primal feeling of, like, you know, kill animals, rip their muscle off their bone, I don't know, whatever. I, so I can kind of construct an argument either way on that one. Americans are sicker than their English counterparts. Yeah, I, I suspect that would be a cultural reason why maybe Americans interact more uh, with people so that they're more likely to pick up casual, you know, colds and flus and stuff. Uh, nothing that really is going to take you out, which is why, you know, the Americans could live as long or longer. 
but just be you know sick more. Uh, I could kind of that kind of makes sense. So uh, yeah, that second one just kind of strikes me as odd, um, more aggressive. I'll I'll agree with Rebecca and say that the meat one is fiction. Okay, Ooh, go team meat, Jay. <laughs> <laughs> team meat, that's awesome. <laughs> it's an anagram. The one about as the Earth warms, uh, speeds will decrease. Wind speeds will decrease. I mean, I'm trying to think about this. Like, okay, so as the Earth warms, maybe it means that the average temperature of the Earth will um, will be the same, right? So right now we have incredibly hot regions and incredibly cold regions, and those differences in temperature and differences in pressure are what make the wind. You know, it's what moves the weather and everything. So. As the Earth warms, maybe things become kind of more, you know, that temperature becomes more neutral or more even. Less of a range, less of a range of temperature. And there's less of an exchange of that of those high high and low pressure systems. I mean, that that could be possible. I and I really I don't know much about meteorology, but that's the best I can do on that one. Isn't there a song about that? (laughs) Don't know know much about meteorology. That's that's right. (laughs) And then the stop Steve. <clears throat> a psychology researcher finds that men become more aggressive after viewing images of meat. Sure, it, it makes sense because but Steve, you know, I have a stupid question here. Okay. You're not talking about like becoming more aggressive when you see a wounded animal or when you see prey. I, I'm picturing from what you're writing here that um it's when people see like exposed uncooked, you know, animal tissue. Actually, in the experiment, it was cooked meat. Okay, so it was basically they become more aggressive when they see cooked meat, like I'm ready to eat cooked meat. Okay, that's different than what I was imagining. Become more aggressive. That's I, that's really interesting. I don't know. I, I really don't know about that one. And then the new study finds that older Americans are sicker than their English counterparts. Yeah, I agree. I think Rebecca said it. I agree. Or was it Bob um, that said that the American people might be exposed to more people? Um, therefore, be more likely to get sicker, or maybe you know, in the United States, more of the elderly are in old age homes, which would put them in a building full of other old people. And I could see that, but I, you know, I could also see that going the other way. You know, then they would be have better health care, and I don't know. So Bob and Rebecca both picked the meat one as the fake. Is that correct? That's correct. Team meat. I could do team meat. I could go with team meat, and we see what Evan does. I love the idea of not going with the crowd. Yeah, but whatever one you pick isn't going to have as good a name as Team Meat. Right. You're right. Just Plus on that alone, I, I, when else am I ever going to be able to join Team Meat in my entire life? This is it. How can, you've, how can you've I do You've never had any offers? Opportunities, Jay. No, I can't. And I can't turn Rebecca down. Everybody knows that. I will go with Team Meat. <laughs> okay, <laughs> Evan? Well, you know. <laughs> What's left to say? It's It's all... Whatever's left at the end, just the tattered remains of some thoughts and ideas. Random. Are you going to join Team Meat or what? Yeah, I'll join Team Meat, for God's sake. Okay. All right. (laughs) Take these in order. New research concludes that as the Earth warms, overall wind speeds will decrease, leaving less energy for wind power. That one is science. Yes. Jay, you hit it on the head. So what happens, what the, what the researchers did when they modeled uh, increasing the Earth's temperature by a few degrees, uh, the poles, the northern and southern regions, will increase in temperature disproportionately, decreasing the difference between 
the temperature at the equator and the temperature at higher uh, uh, latitudes. And it is that difference in temperature that drives a lot of the wind power, a lot of the wind speeds. So, uh, yeah, wind speeds will decrease because there's less of a difference in temperature uh, in different parts of the Earth driving the wind. I missed my calling. You did. You're a natural. You're a naturalist. <laughs> I'm a natural hot, hot air. air blower, yes. Thanks, Rebecca. <laughs> so that means with wind power on the wane, we'd have to build more coal-fired uh, power plants. Put I hope more so. CO2 in the atmosphere. I hope so. That's That will be the cause of runaway global warming. Yeah. All right, let's go on to item number two. I say, ecology researcher finds that men become more aggressive after viewing images of meat. You guys Rich. all think this one is the fake, and this one yes. is the fake. Goatee meat. Ooh, meat. Artificial meat. Yay. Wait, it won? <laughs> yes, yes, we won, did. Jay. Told you, Jay. Wow. Now, the, the researcher, Kachanoff, Researcher with a special interest in evolution at McGill University Department of Psychology. Now, his hypothesis, his hypothesis, was that for you know evolutionarily evolutionary psychology reasons, that men would uh, become more aggressive upon viewing meat because it would trigger instincts like hunting, but also protecting the food from rivals. Right. So he did a, pr- a pretty standardized test. Uh, where you have subjects, they're viewing somebody who is doing a, uh, who is like reading a script, and every time they make a mistake, they're supposed to punish them by giving them like a loud noise. How much the the, the subject punishes the, the confederate, the person who's reading the script who gets things wrong, is, is supposed to be a measure of overall aggressiveness, right? So this is this is actually a standard protocol. Uh, so he did this using images as part of the script, and you know there were neutral images, and then he would throw in images of meat. And what he found was that the opposite effect happened, that people actually became less aggressive, that men became less aggressive after viewing the images of meat. Ah, uh, meat. Didn't they do this in Fight Club? Is that right? <laughs> you don't talk about Throwing it. Throwing in images of meat. <laughs> so... <laughs> now his retrospective interpretation of this data, because it's always easier to explain stuff after the fact, right, is that uh, he thinks it's because he used cooked meat, used Im- images of cooked meat, and that it, he says it makes sense that if you're if you're viewing cooked meat, that means you've already made the kill, you've already cooked it, you're now surrounded by friends and family, and therefore that should be a calming, as Rebecca said, a calming experience. Mm-hmm. Right. So he wants to repeat the, the bacon. He wants to repeat the experiment with raw meat to see if that has a different outcome. And science progresses. So this <laughs> means that and therefore and therefore a new study finds that while older Americans are sicker than their English counterparts, they live as long or longer. That one is science. Now, it's funny. You guys all interpreted the sicker as like having more colds and stuff. But actually, Americans are sicker in that we have more chronic illness, diabetes, high blood pressure, heart attacks, and strokes. Makes sense. I think that probably partly relates to the fact that Americans are more obese and that that drives a lot of those diseases. Um, So this this was a fairly extensive survey looking at... Uh, these factors at the rate at which um, you know Americans aged 55 to 64 in one group and then 70 to 80 in another group, uh, the rate at which they, they have these chronic illnesses and Americans have more chronic illnesses than 
than English people of the same age. Um, however, their life expectancy was the same in the 55 to 64-year group, and it was actually longer for Americans in the 70 to 80 group. Now, it's always difficult to interpret these observational type of studies because there's just there's so many variables potentially at play. But you know, the, the obvious interpretation that the authors discuss is that um, what this healthcare. means is that, yeah, the health care just may be better yeah. in the United States. That would be the simplest or the most you know, direct cause and effect way to interpret that, that while Americans are sicker, we pay for more health care. And apparently there's some effectiveness to that. So that, that, uh, that was the interpretation. But obviously, you know, again, we can't draw a conclusion like that from an observational study like this. Uh, but I thought that was interesting. Mm-hmm. Not a yeah. surprise that we have more chronic illness. I mean, it's basically just because of, you know, obesity. Uh, they said that it was the same regardless of socioeconomic status. So if you compared, you know, if you if you uh, controlled for that variable for socioeconomic status, that was that was not a, a difference. That did not account for the difference. They didn't specifically mention obesity, but I, I would that would certainly be on my short list of possible explanations for that. Nice. So good work, everyone. I wasn't sure how you were going to reason your way through that, but I think Rebecca's <laughs> bacon saved the day. <laughs> oh, I saved everyone's yes. bacon. <laughs> yes, Rebecca's Thanks, Rebecca. bacon well saved said. your bacon. <laughs> Jay, give us a quote, and it better be from Carl Sagan. In science, it often happens that scientists say, you know, that's a really good argument. My position is mistaken. And then they would actually change their minds, and you never hear that old view from them again. They really do it. It doesn't happen as often as it should because scientists are human and change is sometimes painful, but it happens every day. I cannot recall the last time something like that happened in politics or religion. Carl Sagan! Very nice. Absolutely. I've definitely heard that before. Steve, I have an announcement. <gasps> Rebecca, I would love to hear your announcement. We're all leaving for Australia soon, and I just wanted to mention that those of you who didn't get tickets to uh, to TAM, Australia. I'm doing, uh, I'll be in Melbourne December 1st with Brian Dunning doing a gig. Um, and then I head to New Zealand December 7th in Christchurch, December 9th in Wellington, and December 11th in Auckland. And then December 16th, I will be back in Sydney for an event there. And you can wow. find details on all of that on Skeptic and uh, hopefully there will be a link in the notes page which I will right. send you now Steve. Yeah. Awesome Rebecca Jay and I have a quick announcement as well this is the last episode that will be up before we leave on our worldwide two city tour uh, we, we will in Sydney uh, we, we don't have the ability to bring our usual convention t-shirt uh, inventory we do have a number of SGU t-shirts that we are that are not available online. You can only get them at live events. But we're, we, are, we have a special t-shirt that is event-specific for TAM Australia. So that will be there because we're having that actually made for us in Australia. But we, we only really have the ability to bring a limited number of inventory. So if you want one of our existing SGU t-shirts, and you do, uh, we'll we'll give you the link. Uh, we'll have this on the Rogues Gallery, and also we'll link to it from various other places, the forums and the website and the, and the homepage, for example. Uh, if We'll show pictures of all the different T-shirts we have available. If you want one, email us with your name, your T-shirt size, and which T-shirt you want, and we will bring just those T-shirts that people specifically request us to. Yeah, so the T-shirts are going to be $25 each, and you, you're going to email me. It's uh, the letter J 
and my full name, N-O-V-E-L-L-A, at theskepticsguide.org. So basically give me your full name, your T-shirt size, and your email address. And tell me, of course, what T-shirts you want because you might want more than one. And then we'll make sure that if we have them in stock, we'll bring them. And if not, we're going to apologize to you when we see you. Hmm. In person. I think we, we pretty much ha- we'll have everything, though, that we show. Uh, there's other, another cool announcement. As of, uh, as of this morning on Wednesday, um, there were 20 seats left for the Vancouver show. So by the time this airs, there may be 10 or no seats left. So as you predicted, Steve, we are, this is going to be a sold-out event. So you know, get your tickets. This is your last chance if you want to go. This is your last warning. So the, yeah, the, when the next episode, not this episode, but the next episode goes up, we're going to be on a plane. Yay! to uh, Vancouver and then Australia. Well, thanks for joining me again, everyone. Thank you, Steve. Steve. And until next week, this is your Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe is produced by the New England Skeptical Society in association with the James Randi Educational Foundation and Skeptic.org. For more information on this and other episodes, please visit our website at www.theskepticsguide.org. For questions, suggestions, and other feedback, please use the Contact Us form on the website or send an email to info at theskepticsguide.org. If you enjoyed this episode, then please help us spread the word by voting for us on Dig or leaving us a review on iTunes. You can find links to these sites and others through our homepage. Theorem is produced by Kineto and is used with permission. Yeah.